For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome. I'm uh, for new, new people. Um, I'm Taigen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher here at Ancient Dragon Senge. Uh, and uh, welcome, and please uh, check out our website and schedule, and please come again if you'd like. Um, so, um, this morning, I'm very happy to have as our guest speaker, Chen Sing Han, who's um, got a wonderful new book. Uh, Be the, I don't know if you can see it. Be the Refuge, Voices of Asian American Buddhists. So, uh, amongst other things, this book uh, illuminates the fact that the majority, the this, the the uh, strong majority of American Buddhists are still Asian Americans, uh, which we might uh, not realize in our uh, majority so-called white uh, sangha here. But um, uh, Chen Sing is, as well as being a writer, she's a chaplain, uh, and we have numbers of chaplains here at Ancient Dragon or people training to be chaplains, uh, Chen Sing trained at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, which is part of the Graduate Theological Union there. She also got her master's in Buddhist studies there. Uh, so the Institute of Buddhist Studies is a Jodo Shinshu seminary, uh, one of the Pure Land schools in Japan. And I believe it's the still the, uh, uh, has the greatest number of uh, people, uh, parishioners in Japan of all the diff- different Buddhist schools. Uh, Jodo Shinshu is uh, very interesting, was founded by a monk named Shinran, who was a contemporary of Dogen, who founded the Soto Zen branch of Buddhism that we follow here and who I talk about a lot. Shinran was a very interesting person. Uh, of all the world's major religious leaders, he might have been the most humble. Uh, he uh, the main practice of Jodo Shinshu, not the only practice, but uh, in this devotional school, uh, one of the main practices is chanting Namo Amida Buddha, chanting to Amida Buddha. And Shinran thought he couldn't possibly do that, even do that chant without the help of Amida Buddha. So anyway, he's a very interesting person. Uh, so I, even though I'm a uh, Soto Zen Buddhist priest and teacher, I have taught at the Institute of Buddhist Studies since 1994, a uh, class a, sem- a semester until I 
relocated to Ch- to Chicago in the beginning of 2007, and since then one class a year. And eight years ago, I had the uh, privilege of having Chen Sing in a class I taught on the Lotus Sutra. And um, Chen Sing's final paper was on the Universal Gateway of Kanzian Bodhisattva, which we chant sometimes here, and uh, which uh, which uh, Asian, one of our teachers here, spoke about recently. Um, and uh, I should just say that Chen Sing got an A-plus in that paper and an A-plus for the course. Um, I've done that a few times since I've been teaching at Institute of Buddhist Studies, but she's an exceptional student. Uh, so I'm very happy to have you here today, Chen Sing. And she'll be helped in her presentation by Howard Duan, who is uh, a longtime Ancient Dragon member and one of the leaders of our Hyde Park Wednesday afternoon group. And last thing I'll mention, instead of saving this for the announcements, is that uh, Chen Sing is also a co-organizer and originator of uh, an event, May Tuesday, May 4th. It'll be 6 p.m. here in Chicago, at, and you can f- go get, find it on maywegather.org. It's a gathering uh, initiated, I believe, by Duncan Ryuken Williams, a fine uh, Japanese Buddhist scholar and uh, Soto Zen priest. Uh, and it's a, an event to venerate our Asian American and Asian ancestors. So, um, Chen Sing, thank you very much for coming and speaking to us this morning. Uh, you're on. <laughs> thank you so much, Taigen, um, for that extremely generous and somewhat embarrassing for me <laughs> introduction. It is really wonderful to be here with all of you today. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Wonderful. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Howard, for agreeing to be in conversation with me. It's just really um, an honor. I feel a little bit overwhelmed just seeing so many faces here. And thank you for your kind attention. So I thought to open, as I often do for book events, I might read a passage from my book. And since we have a little bit of time, I thought I would read a slightly longer passage. For those who want to follow along, this is on page 113. And little bit of background for why I chose this passage, because it is a little bit provocative, but it's kind of in the middle of the book here in chapter seven. The chapter is entitled Tension. And many people have talked about this book as a kind of genre-defying book, which I suppose is a bit like Asian American Buddhists ourselves. So people have characterized it as a work of scholarship, ethnography, memoir. Some people have said it feels like an anthology or a work of literature or a manifesto. So maybe it's all of these things. Maybe it's none of these things. I'm not sure, but I suppose I've had the privilege of listening to many different readers and hearing their varied reactions. So this little section, I think, gives a taste of how the book does mix together different genres. May I be filled with loving kindness, May I be well, may I be peaceful and at ease, may I be happy. May you be filled with loving kindness, may you be well, may you be peaceful and at ease, may you be happy. May we be filled with loving kindness, may we be well, may we be peaceful and at ease, may we be happy. 
Our voices rise to the wooden rafters, the simple tune cresting at filled, I-U-E, happy, a song made sweeter by days of communal silence. Years later, I will sing this melody of metta with patients on the oncology unit. But right now, I am a college student on winter break who doesn't even know what a hospital chaplain is, much less that I will eventually train as one. This, my first meditation retreat, has not been all honeyed tones and herbal tea. I expect to struggle with pain in my inflexible hips, to fight my penchant for nodding off, but there's another discomfort I'd forgotten to anticipate. In a room of more than 100 people, I can count on one hand those of us who aren't white. Also few and far between those of us who aren't baby boomers. I should be used to this by now. The Insight Meditation Center I've been going to for evening Dharma talks and day-long sits has been good practice for feeling conspicuously Asian and markedly young. I know this retreat center, which is also in the Insight Meditation tradition, is trying to diversify. There are scholarships available for people of color and young adults. I'm here under the auspices of one. Still, given the demographics, it's hard not to think of these sanghas as white spaces. I am on my best behavior because I want to be a good meditator, a polite guest, a harmless interloper. I say thank you when white sangha members praise my unaccented English, swallowing the temptation to snark that five-year-olds tend to have pretty good language acquisition skills, especially in the aggressively monolingual public school environment of 1990s America. I say China when asked, where are you from? Because responding with Pennsylvania and Washington State will only trigger a, where are you really from? I'm sure my questioners mean well, even if their curiosity about my ethnic origins curiously doesn't seem to extend to their fellow white meditators. I doubt they are trying to remind me that Asian Americans have long been painted as perpetual foreigners, even if their families have lived in this country for generations. This is hardly the first time I fielded compliments on my English or queries about my origins, but your parents must be Buddhist, catches me off guard. I suppress the urge to blurt out, are you saying that because I'm Asian? Having lived through the tumultuous cultural revolution, my parents are staunchly a-religious, if not anti-religious. I suppress the urge to point out that U.S. Asian adults are more likely to be Christian, 42%, or religiously unaffiliated, 26%, than Buddhist, 14%. I practiced with the Korean Zen community for four years, and white members tended to assume I was Korean and grew up within that school, Catherine observes. Neither is true. Like me, Catherine was born in Shanghai, raised by non-religious parents in various parts of America, and gravitated toward Buddhism in college. Yet people assume we have inherited an ethnic form of Buddhism from our parents, our stories predetermined before we have a chance to speak them ourselves. Where are we to stake our tents in the dual dueling camps of Asian immigrant and white convert Buddhism? All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow.
A dozen voices echo in the room where I have come to memorize this chant, our solemn monotone reverberating off pine floors, absorbing into black zabutans, awakening wintry morning air as a vow constricts into a haunting, hallowed silence. Years later, Trent and I will intone these words before exchanging wedding rings, but for now, we are living in our first apartment, juggling multiple part-time jobs, me, and a fellowship, him, while applying for grad school, both of us. At the Zen temple just down the street from us, the practice style differs from the Insight Meditation Center, where I learned the loving-kindness song. The demographics do not. After a month of morning zazen, I work up the courage to ask the vice abbot where I might find other young non-white Buddhists and meditators. His frank reply, you should look elsewhere. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Pragna Paramita, clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. It's no problem following along with the English version of the Heart Sutra on the page in front of me, but I get lost in the clump of Roman letters rendering the Japanese. Makya Hanya Haramita Shingyo. Kanji Zaibo Satsukyo Jin Hanya Haramita Jisho. Kengo On Kai Kudo Isai Kuyaku. I can't help but wish the service book included kanji and hiragana in addition to the romaji, like I've seen at the Shin Buddhist temple a mile north of this Bay Area Zen Center. And here in the text, the Japanese is included with the uh, kanji and the hiragana. I can decipher the meaning of the kanji because they are virtually the same as the Chinese characters. And reading hiragana is one of the few things I've retained from high school Japanese. But even if I couldn't make sense of these glyphs, there's a beauty to the depth of history they convey. In a tradition so focused on lineage, it's odd to see these roots erased. Of course, it's the Zen Center's prerogative to print the chants only in Roman letters. Maybe there wasn't enough space on the page. Maybe they assumed their Sangha members wouldn't feel any cultural connection to the kanji and hiragana. It's very rare to find Asians in these communities, Manoj acknowledges. Raised Hindu in southern India, Manoj began exploring Buddhism after moving to America and discovered an affinity for Soto Zen. He reached out after hearing about my project from another Zen practitioner, though he wasn't sure if he qualified for an interview. I'm Indian and hope it counts in the Asian category. After assuring him that Indian very much counts as Asian in my book, here we are braving blustery winds at an outdoor table in a cafe by the bay. Over the chatter of the Sunday brunch crowd, Manoj reflects on the time he has spent in Zen communities in the Midwest and California. I would love to meet, have more Japanese people, even just for things like pronouncing. Manoj admits that he gets annoyed when fellow practitioners quote mango Sanskrit words. He recalls a cringeworthy occasion where his Zen temple in Minneapolis printed out cards for a special function, and a Japanese man pointed out that the calligraphy was upside down. Diversity is always good because you know it's going to give you more ideas. It's going to be a more enriching experience, Manoj argues. In the online anthology, Making the Invisible Visible, 
Healing Racism in our Buddhist communities. A 27-year-old Asian American Zen practitioner considers how she, a Yonsei, came to find out about Zen Buddhism through a predominantly white Zen center rather than through a local Japanese American temple. Writing anonymously, she reveals some of the more charged moments in this environment. An older white female practitioner patting me on the head and petting my hair while speaking to me in what I perceived to be patronizing tones. Hearing residents comment to me that my parents who visited recently are so cute and feeling as if they're describing a teddy bear. She tries to relate to these encounters as fertile ground for practice, though it's really easy to do so. When I have felt like residents are putting down Asian people and things, how to be fully present for the initial fuzziness, the disbelief, and then the hurt and annoyance, how to make contact when sensations and remembrances arise of past experiences when Asians have been relegated to this category of subhuman, often in order to deny opportunities or resources, and to not get stuck or lost. When I feel like young men are looking at me through their stereotype-pumped lenses, how to be present for the arising disdain and for the remembrance of other not-so-pleasant encounters I have had with certain men, being told such things as, you are so exotic, I really like special exotic things. How to make space for the rising impulse to close off and become all business-like, as well as the deep desire to be open and to meet each person in the moment as human. How to be present for all of these things and either suppress or over-emote. And when I can't do this, how to remember to just give myself a hug and notice. These words were published in 2000. But every time I read them, it feels like they could have been penned yesterday. I'm always struck, too, by how startlingly rare it is to hear voices like hers. I know she's not the only Asian American experiencing racial tensions in her sangha. Following the advice of the vice abbot, I went further afield, or more precisely, I circled back to the bigger Zen temple where I first learned the Makahanya Haramita Shingyo. I told the abbot about my desire to connect with other Asian American Buddhists. He offered to introduce me to a Sangha member, thinking she, a Chinese American, would be better equipped to discuss these issues than he, a white man. The interaction didn't go quite as expected. A good lesson in beginner's mind. The practitioner cut off the conversation with a curt, she's a banana, and walked off. The dumbfounded abbot quickly excused himself. I was unsure how to parse the situation, though the encounter certainly disabused me of any notions of Asian American Buddhists being a unified, harmonious block. So I'll stop there. I know that's a lot. Um, I think I just want to reflect that that's the first time I've read this passage since the Atlanta shootings and also um, since beginning to organize this National Buddhist Memorial Ceremony. So the resonance of the words kind of hit me differently, even as I read them. 
Um, and I can imagine it probably lands differently for different people. But thank you very much for your kind attention and for listening. And I know Howard has prepared a lot of really wonderful questions. So I actually think it would be wonderful for me to dive into conversation with him before we open it up to the whole Sangha for questions. And I'm very much looking forward to all of your questions and insights. Yeah, thank you so much, Jensing. Um, I, you know, it's it was interesting reading this book and also very interesting um, listening to this portion because this, you know, I, I knew ahead of time that you were going to read this, and I was also reflecting on the fact that I was, um, I read the majority of this book after Atlanta, um, and you know, I think it, I think it hit me in a in a very specific emotional tenor because I. I am not used to you sort of what you read. I am also very much uh, not used to being, um, I'm used to being the only Asian person um, in a lot of these spaces, or at least being one of the very few, um, if not Asian, then also just minorities in, in spaces specifically. Um, and so I felt very seen. I, and there was a lot of sort of um, points where uh, in the interviews, in these memoirs and the, and this ethnography, whatever this is, um, that I saw my own experience in it. Um, and so it was very affirming for me to, to read this book. So I, I, I first of all want to say thank you for, for the, um, the experience of being able to be, to feel connected <laughs> and to feel seen and heard, um, in a space where I not, you know, sometimes, uh, intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, right. Um, I am not seen and heard. Um, for sometimes conscious reasons, sometimes unconscious reasons. So you mentioned at the very end of your excerpt, right, that um, Asian Americans are not a unified, harmonious block. Um, and I wanted to open up this dialogue, you know, with with, with a framing um, sort of question. And I wanted to read, uh, and this is uh, a short passage. The very beginning of your book, it's the very first chapter. This is how you start out the book. Um, So this is, and if anybody has the book, it is page 21, the very first chapter. The first issue of Tricycle magazine hit newsstands on the cusp of the fall of the Soviet Union. In her introduction to the subsequent winter 1991 issue, founding editor Helen Torkov comments on the recent August coup praises the diversity of American Buddhism and calls for the ongoing protection of political and religious pluralism in the United States. The penultimate paragraph of Torkov's introduction includes a remark that would reverberate in Buddhist circles for years to come. Quote, the spokespeople for Buddhism in America have been almost exclusively educated members of the white middle class. Meanwhile, even with varying statistics, Asian American Buddhists number at least 1 million, but so far they have not figured prominently in the development of something called American Buddhism, unquote. Um, and so you, you open this up um, sort of with, with an eye toward this two Buddhisms uh, thesis or argument or whatever you want to call it, uh, assumption. <laughs> um, I, I'm just kind of, you know, I want to hear you talk about what this two Buddhisms is, are, um, and how your book responds to that. 
Thanks so much, Howard. And I just want to say thank you for your reflections on how the book has landed with you and that it's just a real honor and a joy to be able to speak with a fellow Asian American Buddhist. And I think someone who can relate to many points in my book as yourself, someone who wasn't raised Buddhist and whose parents are Chinese. So two Buddhisms is sort of... oh. There much ink has been spilled in the study of American Buddhism over this topic, so I won't bore us by going down a scholarly rabbit hole, but I think I'll just read one paragraph from page 10 because I think it's kind of a concise summary. So the dominant story of Buddhism in America is that there are two Buddhisms, the Buddhism of white converts and the Buddhism of Asian immigrants. What differentiates these, quote, two distinct and mutually isolated brands of Buddhism? We're told for starters that Western slash white Buddhists focus on meditation practice in keeping with their rational and modernist bent, whereas Asian slash Asian American Buddhists prefer the traditional and devotional rituals of chanting and bowing. It's not hard to guess which group is more likely to be dismissed as superstitious and which group is more likely to be celebrated as scientific. So when trying to think about Asian American Buddhists, it was hard for me to escape this kind of, we could call it a narrative, we could call it a myth. I think like with many typologies, if we want to call it that, there's certainly a level of truth to it, but it just, it kept coming up against its limitations, I think, when writing this book. So, you know, first at an obvious level, when we take two categories and then we racialize them, it's always going to be problematic, right? Because as I mentioned in the passage, I read no single group is a monolith. But beyond that, even on a very personal level, I wondered, where do I fit as an Asian American convert, right? I think there's also a way in which the model has the unfortunate tendency to feel like a little bit timeless as if like white converts and their children or maybe their children after, like they're all kind of the same. And similarly with Asian immigrants and their children. I mean, I think we all know just from personal experience, we are not our parents. So I think anyone of any racial background can appreciate that. So, you know, thinking, how do we relate to this when in Buddhist studies, we often talk about there are many Buddhisms, so many different forms, right? We can talk about lineage. We can pay attention to the dimension of generation, as I do in this book, both in the sense of, for for all people, really, what generation immigrant are you? Since with the exception of Native Americans, we're all immigrants at one point or the other, our families were. But also what historical generation have we been born into, right? Most of my interviewees were millennials or Gen X. I think this book would look really different if we were focused on Gen Z. Um, A lot more of the literature currently out there by white converts, I think, has more of a baby boomer emphasis. And then in the book, I also, it's for those who read the book, you know that it's structured on this idea of generations of American Buddhists. And I'll explain this in a minute. So this idea actually came from one of my interviewees, Noah Alumit, who is Filipino and grew up Catholic and then uh, came to Buddhism later in life. And he talked about how he identifies as a first gen American Buddhist in the sense that he's the first generation in his family to be Buddhist in America. And he lives in LA. So it's a very diverse, some would say the most diverse Buddhist city in the world. And he looks at his friends who maybe are, you know, Thai or Lao or Cambodian or Taiwanese or from other parts of Asia who are second generation immigrants. And they're also second gen Buddhists because they were raised to be Buddhist in America. Their parents are the sort of 
you know, for, had raised them in the faith and are a sort of first-gen American Buddhist, if you will. And then finally, he talks about his Jodo Shinshu friends who are multi-gen Buddhists who've been in this country for five more generations. And so they've been Buddhist in America, sometimes tracing back to the 19th century. Um, yeah, so there's so much we could say about two Buddhisms, but my book is kind of Sometimes I call it a joyful rebuke <laughs> to two Buddhisms in the sense that I'd like us to start thinking about what it looks like to think about an intersectional Buddhism that includes a lot of different factors that really starts to come more close to the nuanced and complex experiences of all of us. And I think in particular, I want to address some of the, you know, possibly very much unintentional effects of two Buddhisms when it's kind of used in a way that implies a sort of white Buddhist meditator as a kind of superior figure in American Buddhism, which then its foil, the Asian immigrant, the superstitious immigrant, all of these things become denigrated. And that when I started reading in the scholarly and also the popular literature, it disturbed me how many times I felt that dynamic was being stated. So in some ways, it can feel like there's only one Buddhism, the one superior form, and then it has created this sort of, you know, denigrated form of Buddhism. And I think that that's not what we all aspire to. I would love for us all to lift up the diversity of forms of Buddhism in America, of American Buddhism, and start to form these bridges of spiritual friendship, because there are gulfs of language, of lineage, of practice, right? There are real differences, but how do we bridge these differences? Thank you for that. You know, I, and when you were responding, um, when you were first responding to this, I, something that struck me, um, you, you actually do use this phrase in the book at some point, um, uh, drawing from an interviewee's words. Um, and it's coming up for me now of sort of, you know, I, I sometimes think of myself as a, as a Buddhist who happens to be Asian, um, as if it were, as if Buddhism was, was, and this is a this is a difficult thing to, to parse out, right? Like, if to say it like that sounds like Buddhism is supposed to only be Asian, um, but you're drawing out something uh, something difficult to, to 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 separate here because it is also the case that I'm assuming that, and some of these some of these Asian American Buddhists are assuming uh, because of the two Buddhisms, right? That Buddhism is not for Asian people or that, or that it has been claimed by, uh, by white people specifically. Um, and something that I came across and some, some people in the Sangha know, I think I had mentioned this to you during our sort of preparation um, that I had spent a year um, with the Jodo Shinshu temple, um, sort of, sort of uh, ethnographic uh, sort of field internship stuff. And I was really struck because I it was the first time I had been in a space that was maybe, predominantly Asian American. Um, and as you say, you know, several generations in um, of being Buddhist. And the, the temple would every time when there were new people coming in, often like white Christian students um, doing their sort of uh, field exploration um, of other religions, um, stay behind and the temple would do a sort of orientation to Pearland Buddhism. And the the and the unending refrain every time was oh we don't we don't do this meditation stuff um and that was like the first thing out of the gate every time <laughs> um and so not only is there sort of this idea that 
in, in, in two Buddhisms that there's, you know, Asian people are, are, or Asian forms of Buddhism are more ritualistic or more superstitious, but real practice in some way, shape or form exists not in that space. Um, so, you know, as you, as you were doing all these interviews, as re, and then sort of as you f- reflect on your own practice, on your own identity as an Asian American Buddhist, how do you see these relationships of, you know, so-called practices or, 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 or ways of life, ways of being, ways of doing um, between ritual, devotionalism, whatever that means, sutra study, meditation practice, do you think that Asian Americans do Buddhism differently, whether or not it follows stereotypes? Um, the, the, the question of practice is something that really resonates deeply here for me because, you know, in, especially in, in Zen and in white Zen meditation practices, the practice par excellence, um, and this, this sort of hidden devaluation of other practices, and they don't count and whatnot. So I'm kind of curious to hear how you are thinking about, and especially in light of these interviews, how, how these all come together or don't come together for you. Yeah, this is such a complex and rich question. You know, uh, something that immediately actually comes to mind is that I remember one of my interviewees who's a Jodo Shin Buddhist actually doesn't use the word practice. And so even that very word practice is kind of loaded in a certain way or, you know, in terms of chanting the Nambutsu and as kind of an expression of gratitude. So practice was not actually the way that she framed what she does. But if I look at her, I was like, she was training to be a minister. She's a minister now. So it's sort of like, what do we mean when you say practice? You know, I used to feel in predominantly white convert spaces where there was a strong emphasis on meditation. I call it like the meditation resume check. People was like, how many retreats have you sat or what have you done? But what, you know, when that's the benchmark, that's the litmus test, who gets left out exactly as you said, who somehow then doesn't seem like a, you know, a real or bona fide Buddhist. I really explore a lot of those questions in the book as well. It's Another thing I think about, so something else you and I share in common is, um, I think, chaplaincy, which you're very interested in. And I should make it clear that um, I'm not actually officially employed in any capacity as a chaplain. So I trained for a year as a chaplain, and I very much draw on that training, both in my writing and my research, and now in the kind of outreach I've been doing for the book. But I'm not officially chaplain, so I just wanted to make that clear to everyone in the audience. Uh, But I think about chaplaincy and the ways that we get, you know, little form in the hospital that will give me a name and maybe a diagnosis and something in the religion column, maybe. But that when I read what's in the religion column, I will probably make up an elaborate story in like the 10 seconds I have before I walk into the door. And then I will be completely disabused (laughs) of that story. The moment, you know, I see the person and the moment we start interacting and I start understanding what Baptist in that column means to them or what Buddhist in that column means to them. And so part of me is like hesitant to kind of racialize these different practices just because I think they're meant for everyone and they're practice for everyone. I've always found it curious that people will associate like white convert Buddhism with meditation only and not with ritual. Cause I'm like, but what about all the Zen communities? There's a ton of ritual. You could say the meditation is a ritual. So the kinds of polarized definitions or the bifurcated definitions we have, I think are often quite limiting. And so that's perhaps one of the messages of the book, like inviting us to think a little bit about the limits of some of these dichotomies that we've set up. 
uh, for my in-person interview. So I did 26 interviews in person and 63 over email. What I was able to do when we were in person was I actually had this activity around the very idea of practices. I kind of wanted to get a sense of you know, how people practiced, but I wasn't able to follow every single person to every sangha, right? In a way, this is a strange ethnography because it was not located in a single place. Like you could say it was a multi-sided ethnography or maybe even an unsighted ethnography because I would just meet people wherever, like come to my apartment or we'll meet in the park outside or we'll meet at the Jodo Shinshu Center or I'll meet at your temple. I just met people where it was convenient for them. Before this card sorting exercise, I had this like big stack of cards with things like, you know, home altar, mala beads. Meditation was one of them, but there was also volunteering at the temple. And so there was a lot of different practices, meditation just being one among many. And I asked people to sort these practices into what they had done and what they hadn't done. And then in terms of what they had done, I asked them to sort into like, what's most important to you right now? And what's the least important in terms of what they hadn't done? I asked them to sort into what are you most interested in trying? Like maybe that was pilgrimage for some people, right? Um, What are you least interested in trying? And I thought maybe like people would just come and every single person would have just like two neat columns, but instead people had these, like what I would call like signatures. So there are these like three-dimensional shapes and like every person's shape of their practice would be completely different. And they'd say like, well, these eight practices are equally important to me right now. So I put them all in a line together. And it was just really amazing to see that, oh, there is so much diversity, even among just 26 Asian American Buddhists. For some of them, meditation is a big part of the practice. For others, it's not. And I actually think that this is probably could be true for other groups as well. But if someone's primary entry into Buddhism was at a center that really strongly emphasized meditation and, for example, didn't have rituals or didn't have services around, you know, death and dying, didn't have some of these other aspects, then they might not actually know what they're missing. And I've certainly heard from people in these communities as they start learning more about like, oh, there's actually quite a panoply of Buddhist practices. And I wish that there was practices in my community that could could address this. So I guess what to me, like if we go back to the Jodo Shinshu Center, we think about how intergenerational those spaces are. I think about a lot of, you know, the Thai or Khmer or Lao temples here in the U.S. that I've gone to or Vietnamese temples. I think of how those are intergenerational spaces, even if often young adults aren't going very often. (laughs) But still, there's a way in which, you know, it's there's an understanding that they are intergenerational, that we do inherit the practice, we do venerate our ancestors, and that we kind of shepherd and steward this religion for future generations. And I also see those often as very socioeconomically mixed places. So I think because of those dynamics, there's a need for practices that are accessible right across a wide range. And so perhaps there's just a wider range of practices that are being um yeah, that are that are being taken on, that are being encouraged in those spaces. Yeah, thank you for that. I um, this is sort of back to the the, the ending of the excerpt you, you had read about Asian Americans not being a, um, a harmonious unified harmonious block. Um, also drawing from my own chaplaincy experiences and and also my experiences um, as a as in in my Master of Divinity um, graduate school um, studies that. I was on. I, I would honestly be more confused and sort of um, in more disagreement with the Buddhists than I was with the Christians or the Muslims, or, um, because I, I would sit there and go, "I don't, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what Buddhism that is." <laughs> um, sort of uh, the, our fundamental assumptions or or 
or the way we do things didn't seem to make sense. Um, and it was even more confusing because it it, it was supposed to be, um, or at least you know, had the sense of supposed that it was supposed to be uh, the same thing that we were doing, especially as being Asians or Asian Americans. And I was also disabused of that notion um, every day <laughs> of my graduate studies. So, um, so many of your your interviewees were, were very vigilant about you know being seen or known as Buddhist, um, but also expressed a lot of anxiety about being Buddhist, especially around white converts. Um, but they also named some some anxiety around Asian Buddhists too that they weren't being Asian enough, uh, either for Asians or white. Buddhists. Um, how do you think that white converts um, contribute to such experiences? Uh, what other barriers uh, keep Asian American Buddhists from being comfortable with claiming that identity? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and again, there's like such a spectrum, right? Like some interviewees are perfectly comfortable being Buddhist. I think especially in the Shin Buddhist community, they've just grown up in with a place of belonging, I think. Um, and so there's that. And then some people really felt Buddhism was very interwoven into their culture and maybe didn't really feel a need to be as publicly outspoken. But then others, precisely as you said, felt sometimes more reluctant to come out as Buddhist, as it were, whether it's because they were bullied in school growing up or afraid of discrimination. Or I think a lot of people were aware of what the blogger, the angry Asian Buddhist called the sort of stereotypology of American Buddhism. And unfortunately, I think Asian Americans and Asians don't uh, come out as the, let's say, let's just say the stereotypology is not very flattering for Asian Americans, right? So if you're a superstitious immigrant, who wants to be that, right? There are people who just didn't want to be seen as idol worshipers or just have these stereotypes kind of labeled, dumped on them. Um, there's this sort of also oriental monk stereotype. So like, oh, you're just peaceful and calm all the time. I think that in and of itself, while on the surface might be a positive stereotype, it's also can be very dehumanizing if people are saying like, oh, you can't be angry. You can't have any emotions. Like you're supposed to be like this certain way. And actually, I think that translates probably to Buddhists of all backgrounds. But for Asian Americans, when we're already a kind of model minority um, within the ways we're racialized in America, and then to belong to a religion that is sometimes one could say like a kind of model minority religion as well, that can actually be very disempowering, I think, against speaking up. Um, and then also, you know, Aaron, uh, the angry Asian Buddhist, uh, very provocatively talked about this sort of notion of being a banana Buddhist. So if we're just saying like, oh, you just happen to be Asian. We're all the same. Like you're just Buddhist. You're just like happen to be a Buddhist. It's as if like our cultures, our ethnicities are merely a side note or are some kind of like baggage that we have to slough off. And I really want to push back against that. I want us all to recognize people of all backgrounds that we are beings who are affected by culture and we're constantly making culture. We're affected by many different cultures. So it's not something it's it's not like baggage right it's completely woven into our daily experience it's not something that we can cut off and just dump but i think certainly for asian american buddhists as a racial minority and also as a religious minority in a country that in many ways can be white christian supremacists it's just not easy navigating that so sometimes you know, you can kind of hide that you're Buddhist, as, as someone said, you know, if you're not like flaunting robes or a shaved head or something. And sometimes it's just easier because it's already exhausting enough to be Asian American. And I've been really feeling for 
you know, we always hope it gets better for younger generations. But when I hear in the aftermath of, you know, our last president saying China virus and the kinds of harassments that very young children are starting to face, it's just very heartbreaking. So I can understand that yet another point of difference and one that has so many stereotypes associated with it. When you're Asian, so many negative or unflattering stereotypes, I can understand and empathize with why people wouldn't necessarily yeah, want to openly identify as a Buddhist. And that's a pity. You know, I write in my book about Asian Americans who didn't know their friends were Buddhist also for like years and years. They just never talked about it. And there can be this moment of like, wow, you too. And I think that that moment, you know, I think of how important it is to build spiritual friendship in Buddhism, to have Kalyanamitta. But of course, it's kind of hard to build that friendship if you can't even see your friends or if you can't even find your potential friends. And I guess maybe if I may, I'll just add one more, one more point. There's a quote I really like from one of my interviewees where she points out that, you know, it's not the same to be a white Buddhist as to be an Asian Buddhist. And she says, it's so much harder for an Asian American person to get their voice heard in the society, Tiffany laments. Speaking up is not a right, but rather a risk for many. And then I go on to just name some examples where Asian American Buddhists have spoken up, particularly around dynamics of race in their communities and just, you know, gotten a lot of, um, I would say harassment um, in response to just sharing, you know, for, for example, Lirio, who's writing under a pseudonym, um, she writes, Every time I want to express my differing perspective, I'm silenced by the shitstorm I know is waiting to demean my person and mock my loved ones rather than engage with the logic of my thesis. And so I take refuge in the non-white, non-English speaking immigrant sanghas I was raised in. And thus our bodies and our voices are absent from your conferences and self-congratulatory blogs. And consequently, there are few to challenge your cocksure assertions of your own diversity and inclusiveness, even as I stand here feeling alienated. So there's a lot of such quotes in the book. And I think part of what's important, just like being able to like voice that pain, realizing that it takes courage to voice that. And then just to sit with that and to understand that still largely the spokespeople for American Buddhism are white. And I think that going back to spiritual friendship, I think there's a reminder that we are all in this together. There's just bigger systems that are so much bigger than each of us individuals. So I think I notice sometimes people take it really personally, like, oh my gosh, it's like all my fault. It's like, really, it's not. It's all our responsibilities to play our part in this kind of, if we live in a society that has some very strong white Christian supremacist strains, how do we work together to actually make it a more inclusive society where people of all racial backgrounds have some level of equity where people of different religious backgrounds can actually safely express and practice their religions. Thank you. On the you mentioned um, sort of the difficulty of being able to voice pain, voice anger, um, and you mentioned the angry Asian Buddhist. Um, for and I, you know, I'm I'm really not aware. Um, if people who aren't Asian American uh, Buddhists know who the angry Asian Buddhist is slash was, um, sorry, give me a second. You, um, 
Aaron Lee is the is the is the angry Asian Buddhist in the. It was it was funny because you, in one of your uh, interview questions, you use what Aaron created as a sort of collage of Asian American Buddhists, and uh, I, I did it myself. Uh, it's like sixteen photos, I think, and uh, did it myself to see how many people I actually recognized. And I was, you know, it, it was painful actually to 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 know that I could only name three or four. Um, name three with certainty and say for one that I think I've seen them before. I have absolutely no idea who they are and I didn't recognize anybody else. And yet I could very easily, you know, name a lot of other white Buddhists or white or white Buddhist adjacent people um, with absolutely no difficulty. And I know that I personally felt a little anger about that as I, as I, as I walked away from that exercise. Um, and I can actually throw that URL into the chat for people. If people are curious to see how many out of 16 Asian American Buddhists they could name. So I, I want to look, you know, turn back to this, this to Aaron, to turn back to the angry Asian Buddhists, to turn to this whole model minority sort of within uh, Buddhism. Um, you know, he, he was and is still really a major figure in the uh, Asian American Buddhist landscape. He figures very prominently in your book. Um, I'm just wondering if you can shed a little light, especially for those who don't know, um, on the angry Asian Buddhist, his contributions, and what it was like to share space with, with Aaron. Yeah, thank you for lifting Aaron. He is completely integral to this book. This book wouldn't exist without him. So back in 2009, um, there was a blog that got started. I don't know if you can see this. It's called The Angry Asian Buddhist. And actually, I think a lot of, Asian, not just Asian American, even um, within Asian American Buddhists, Howard, I think a lot of them wouldn't even know who uh, Angry Asian Buddhist is. But he started this blog actually anonymously, and he started writing about issues of race and representation in American Buddhism, rooted in a very personal experience. So he wanted to know, like, why, why is American Buddhism predominantly white? Why are these claims to, why are there these claims to diversity and inclusivity? But then he would go on their website and the roster of lineups would be all white teachers. He just really wanted to hold American Buddhism accountable, right? And so, of course, being calling yourself the Angry Asian Buddhist, which itself is a pun off the very popular blog, The Angry Asian Man, um, but it it's like like we've talked about sort of doubly surprising because it's like, no, Asians aren't supposed to be angry and Buddhists definitely aren't supposed to be angry. And he actually writes on his blog about his awareness, certainly that within Buddhist thought, you know, anger is often seen as a poison of the mind. And yet I think he was using this title as a kind of skillful means because it definitely got people to sit up and take notice. And I think just want to show this picture of Aaron here. So um, you can tell he doesn't look like a very angry person. <laughs> um, he wrote anonymously to protect himself. And I can understand why, you know, people really, um, he got attacked by people who would call themselves the angry Aryan Buddhist, etc. Um, there are alt-right Buddhists alive and well today. So we can understand why he wanted to protect himself. And very fortunately, my mentor at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, my thesis advisor, Scott Mitchell, knew Aaron through the Buddhist blogosphere of that time. So he put us in touch. And I was actually pretty 
terrified to reach out. I thought like, he's going to be really mean. <laughs> like, he's just going to be such an angry person. And of course he was just the most generous and kind person right away. He just said, I want to support this project. I want to help you in any way possible. So Aaron himself was half Chinese, Toysanese and half Ashkenazi Jewish. So he was mixed race and he'd practiced in a lot of different Buddhist communities. Um, he just had the kind of personality where he loved to get to know other Buddhists. You know, I sometimes feel like he saw all of these, all of us global Buddhists as kind of one big family. And sure, there's lots of members of the family we don't know. Sometimes we're a little estranged from other members of the family. Sometimes family members do things you're like, what? Why? I don't understand. But he just had a willingness to go meet people where they were. He loved languages. So he would learn different languages. Um, you know, his Vietnamese American friends called him Fu and he would go to their communities. He would go to Jodo Shinshu communities, even though meditation wasn't a big part of their practice. And it was a really big part of his. I think he really had a heart of service actually for his communities. And very tragically, Aaron passed away um, a few years ago of cancer at the age of 34. And in many ways, this book is a tribute to Aaron. It's a way to continue his legacy. I actually had a much more academic version of this book that I wrote at first. Uh, lots of footnotes, hundreds of footnotes, <laughs> much more boring and dry. You know, it really centered two Buddhisms a lot more, which as a result, decentered the voices of Asian American Buddhists. And then after Aaron's death, which came as such a shock. I just couldn't write that book anymore. Like that first version of the book didn't make sense anymore. So I actually threw the whole thing out and started rewriting it from scratch. I wanted to write something that Aaron and his friends could read and relate to. I wanted to write something that could be taught in undergrad classrooms where there's so little literature. There's actually no book before this one that looks at Asian American Buddhists as a pan-Asian category and as a pan-Buddhist category. You know, those of us from all different ethnic backgrounds, from different Buddhist backgrounds, different sectarian backgrounds. And it's starting to be taught, I'm happy to say, in colleges and even in some high schools. And it's been really powerful to hear reflections from students and particularly Asian American students who often say this is also feels like the first time they've seen themselves represented, particularly for those of them who were raised Buddhist. So yeah, I could talk about Aaron all day. He was just an amazing person and such a generous person. And We've, I've joked with a few friends, we feel like we're in the lineage of Aaron. <laughs> like, I think maybe all of us inherit multiple lineages in our Buddhism, but um, we are exploring what it means to be in a lineage of Aaron. And I think at the heart of that lineage of Aaron is spiritual friendship. And I think part of that spiritual friendship is not being afraid to have uncomfortable conversations because we need to learn how to have these conversations. They're very uncomfortable. It's very tempting to bypass them. I get that. But if there is a way we can stick together and just like practice moving through the discomfort of having these conversations, I think that it will reduce some of the suffering, some of the racialized suffering that is in our society and also in our Buddhist sanghas. Thank you, Chen Xing. And before turning it over for, for more conversation um, and with the, with the Sangha here, um, just one final one. And, you know, th this question is always, always feels a little unfair because of how broad it is. And sort of, sort of in, um, also in congratulation that you are having this book being taught in, in uh, various educational settings. Um, 
what would you want people to know about Asian American Buddhists that you haven't uh, said yet? Well, maybe I have said some of these things, but it never hurts to recap, right? The first that, you know, Asian American Buddhists are an integral part of American Buddhist history. I mean, it's a deep history going back to the 19th century. So I've heard from many people who realized that they were told an origin story of American Buddhism that began with white converts in the 1960s and 70s. And that's just not true. So I think that there are scholars working to help us see a much fuller picture of that history. And that's really important. I think it's important to remember, you know, we Buddhists are very much a minority in this country, maybe about 1% of the population. But of that minority, two thirds are of Asian heritage. So the majority of Buddhists are of Asian heritage. And also, obviously, the vast majority of Buddhists in the world are still in Asia. And so I think Asian Americans are kind of bridge, actually. Many of them can take a more transnational perspective on Buddhism. And I think that's actually very helpful. I mean, in the U.S., it's just so easy to fall into a kind of American exceptionalism, if not superiority. And we can get kind of like very deep in our little rabbit holes and not realize, oh, the bigger picture of Buddhism writ large. It's constantly changing. There are many people in Asia who are shaping it, many diasporic people, many sort of global people who are moving between all these spaces. So I think that's important to remember that we're such a diverse group, a complex group, not monolithic, and hope that we would really like to see representations that reflect that. Um, and yeah, I'm also very touched by the last line of Ryo Imamura's letter. So when you wrote, when you read earlier that quote about Asian American Buddhists not figuring into the history of American Buddhism, Reverend Ryo Imamura, who himself is the 18th generation Jodo Shinshu priest, wrote a response to that letter that's printed in this book. And at the very end of that response, he says, please remember, you know, that we do exist and we have feelings that can be hurt. You know, we're human. It seems like such a simple point, but I think it's very important to remember. And I think especially in light of the rise of anti-Asian violence in the wake of the Atlanta shootings, the ways that Asian Americans so often have felt invisible and erased the pain of that. I think it's both very important for Asian Americans to find ways to express that pain, to find safe spaces to do so, express all the emotions that they're feeling, and for other people to listen, and then for us to figure out how to work together, right, to alleviate suffering, to build more diverse, more inclusive communities. And I guess maybe just in case, uh, I want to make sure we have time for other people's questions, but I just do want to warmly invite really you, of course, and everyone in the Sangha to attend the May We Gather um, Buddhist ceremony. So this is a national Buddhist memorial ceremony that will bring together Asian American Buddhist leaders and also their allies. Uh, ways to support the event include, of course, watching the live stream itself at six o'clock central time on Tuesday, May 4th. And we chose that date because it's 49 days after the Atlanta shootings, exactly. And in many Buddhist traditions, 49 days is a very important turning point for those who have died. It's kind of a you know transition to the next life. But also I think for the bereaved, it's a really important turning point. So there's a way in which we're centering ritual and ceremony from many different Buddhist traditions. And we're hoping that it can be a space of healing, of solidarity, right, of coming together, gathering together. And I know for myself, you know, much as writing this book was actually quite a healing process for me. Um, it was just made me 
it was very humbling, actually. I realized like, oh my gosh, it's so vast what even Asian American Buddhist is, which means that it's so vast what American Buddhist is when we include our friends of other racial backgrounds, of other cultural backgrounds. And similarly for this, may we gather, um, just put trying to, you know, just doing my very small part of co-organizing. It also helps me appreciate yeah, just how many spiritual friends there are out there whom we have yet to still meet and whom we have yet to still learn from. Thank you so much, Chensing. Um, so we do have time for people to respond or comment, and I'm sure many people have comments or questions they want to ask you. Um, I have a number myself. I'll just briefly say, um, well, first, that uh, the May 4th event, may we gather, Ancient Dragon Zen Gate is formally uh, a supporter of. Um, so, um, and, and one point that uh, people at Ancient Dragon know that I talk about a lot, that uh, the Soto Zen tradition that we are uh, part of, in many ways, is very devotional and very much, faith is very much important to um, so, um, you know, that, although of course we do emphasize meditation as well. Um, and then, uh, just the last thing I wanted to just raise up is we, we've talked about, we talk about race here uh, a lot, but, um, you know, the white supremacist terrorists who are being supported by major politicians now, you know, the Asian, Asian Americans are, are you know, the Atlanta attack, but other attacks recently as well. Uh, it's just terrible. And uh, I feel like attacks against Asian Americans are attacks against Buddhists. So I just wanted to say that. And um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have any responses to any of that right now, but I also want to open this up to anybody who has comments or questions. Um, if you're on screen, you can raise your hand if you are not, you can go to the participant window, and at the bottom of that, there's a raise hand option. And David Ray, maybe you can help me call on people. Uh, I don't know if you had any uh, had any follow up comments. Chen Singh first. Uh, let's get to let's do questions since I see there's several. I want to make sure there's enough time. Okay, um, uh, for Shinyu. Uh, actually, I didn't raise my hands first, but I'll just go. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I, I don't know how I'm feeling right now, like after your talk. And um, I mean, personally, I identify as Asian instead of Asian American because I came to the States around five or six years ago for college study. So um, it's really interesting for me to hear about like Asian American Buddhist communities, like I, I'm not, I'm really not familiar with that community to be honest. And I've only been to like, probably visited uh, like in a Buddhist temple in Chinatown or something. And um, uh, often like looks a little bit, I don't know, sketchy in some ways to me. <laughs> and um, and it's it's quite interesting. And I. I think her talk really, it feels like a, like a really hot rock on my hands. I don't know what to do about it right now. And, um, and I just, I, I just started to reflect upon like, why 
am I joining this lineage? Why am I interested in this lineage? Uh, like under ancient dragon Zen gate or Soto Zen in general. Um, why is it perhaps more appealing to me than, uh, than like Buddhism in China, let's say like, um, I mean, I'm not raised as a Buddhist. Like my parents, they would go to temples for good fortunes, but not like they, they never do meditation or anything or they don't, but my mom do occasionally chant, but that's more of a cultural thing. It feels like it never feels like a, um, like there's a real practice in some ways. And, but it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's just, yeah, I, I feel like it's, I haven't read her book, so I, I think after this talk, it'd be really interesting for me to do some reading. And, um, and also, I, I was just reminded, I don't know if any of you have watched Ali Wong's uh, uh, stand-up comedy. I, I'm really into stand-up comedy in general. And uh, I just couldn't help her be reminded of a story she told, like... Uh, so her husband and her are both Asians and um, and then they would hang these like calligraphy or uh, like those pictures with calligraphy that I don't that are from China I guess were painted by Chinese painters and um, but then they, but then they don't understand a, a any of the characters and and she says she just can't help but feel like a white like I don't know. Uh, white people it being interested in Asian culture in some ways uh, when actually she is not. And I don't know why I'm reminded of the story. It feels some sort of interesting parallel between someone practicing in the <laughs> in a predominantly white um, sangha. Uh, yeah, anyways, it's just so interesting. You brought up so many things that I feel that I feel like has been hidden under the, under the surface for my experience. And I'm, that I wasn't, that I know was happening, but I didn't know was actually, but, but you voiced it and very, very well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, I just really appreciate yeah, you sharing your perspective. And I think also the reminder that, you know, Asian, Asian American, even, you know, not all people are even going to identify as Asian American, right? Even those who were born in the U.S. might identify more just with their specific ethnic group, say Japanese American or Tibetan or um, Khmer, for example. And I think that's just really important to remember people come from such different backgrounds and enter this conversation in such different places. And just briefly, I just want to say thank you for mentioning Ali Wong and just bringing humor into the conversation because I think part of what Aaron would have loved for us to do is, you know, part of having these uncomfortable conversations, I think, is sometimes bringing in a little bit of humor and levity into the mix is really, really helpful. Um, I think there's a lot of humor and actually joy in this book. So I know there's sometimes a way in which talking about race can feel like a chore. And I think that that's not a very sustainable way for us to engage in these issues. So I love your hot rock metaphor. Like sometimes we can hold it for a while and then maybe we just need to put it down and go to a cooling place for a bit and that's completely okay right if we want to be having these conversations and these explorations in the long term it doesn't get done in a day so we just do it one day at a time and one conversation one story at a time so thank you so much for sharing from your experience i really appreciate it uh, thank you uh, frank sunita 
Thank you so much for uh, this. Um, Ms. Han, from your perspective, if you could uh, bolt into the future and create a Buddhist community that was idyllic, uh, what button point uh, aspects would you highlight that would uh, inspire a Buddhist community today? Well, I'm not sure I could create an idyllic one. Um, if we want it to be perfect, we're probably taking ourselves too seriously. But um, let me see if I can cheat and just read a very short passage. So I, this is actually a question I asked my interviewees. I asked them, what would your ideal Buddhist community look like? And I think Doma has a pretty beautiful answer. So I'm going to cheat and read her answer. What would your ideal Buddhist community look like? This is a beautiful question. While I grew up in the Nyingma tradition, I have learned so much from other Buddhist traditions. We're all so different and have so much to offer each other. I would love to see a Buddhist community that embraces multiple traditions, with multiple shrines and altars, of course, and applies the Dharma to modern-day issues. I envision a diverse and welcoming community that tackles challenging questions and strives to be culturally humble a community that engages in the social and political reform necessary to create a kinder and healthier world. And I think I would also add that I actually, even just now, you know, without jumping to that future, feel a lot of joy in the different kinds of communities that are already present. I feel so grateful for Ancient Dragon Sengay, for the different sanghas that are inviting me. I feel each one I have so much to learn from, right? 84,000 Dharma gates. So I, I don't, I am always wary of being like, let's just create one Sangha to rule them all. Like that doesn't really work. Then we just have 84,000 and one Dharma gates, I think. But I do, I would love to see maybe some of the barriers for us to connect across differences of language or culture be a little bit lower, just so it becomes easier to visit different communities. You know, for myself, I think were it not for my partner who, himself is white and a convert Buddhist, but um, has very deep connections to Southeast Asia, I don't think I would have ever connected so much to different Southeast Asian Buddhist communities, both here and in Southeast Asia. And I write about that quite a bit in my book, too, since it's been such a big part of my Buddhist journey. So there's both like the kind of how do we create new spaces, and even like the May We Gather event is a sort of articulation of a multicultural, multi-sectarian space, but also how do we just visit existing spaces and learn from all that they have to offer. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. So, uh, David Ray, I don't know if you've seen hands up. Um, yes, James's uh, hand is up, and then, and then Paul's hand is up. Uh, um, who, who was the first one? Uh, James has had his hand up, and I just saw Paul's hand. Okay, so James Higginen, I don't know if I'm pronouncing correctly. Perfect. Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, greetings from Thailand. I have li- and um, and I'm my my background's a little bit of a Soto Miyazumi, did, did some Chan in America, and then I came to Korea, and I felt at home, even though Korea is not completely Buddhist. But and then I lived in China for a little while, and then I've been in Thailand off and on for six years, and I was also in Saudi Arabia, where practicing would mean expulsion. So, um, my thing is that um. They, my wife is a, a pretty devoted Buddhist, um, which is rare in Thailand, even though it's 94% Buddhist. And she chants for, for three hours a day in Pali. And I'm not even sure what she's, and there's all this ritual. And it's 
so rich part of their lives. And I asked my wife, well, what's it mean to be a Buddhist? She says, it means being a good person. And um, I feel kind of like a novelty, but I'm treated with such, most places, I'm either ignored or they think I'm a tourist. But they, when, I, when they realize I'm a Buddhist in, uh, in Korea or places I've been, the welcome I feel is amazing. But I don't also, I want to, what I want to ask, talk about is that um, they don't have 500 years of modernism. They, they consider American Buddhism, you know, kind of like, oh, okay, that's, but they, they, I've talked to some of them Buddhists here and they, and also they say, well, it is an eightfold path. And we don't really, we pre, psychology, Buddhism predates psychology and modernism and all that Western stuff by so many thousand years. And so um, I've got begun to appreciate that and um, to value the rich and just try to treat them with respect. And I hope that who in America, that Asian Americans are treated with respect because I've been treated with respect. And even though, um, you know, or acceptance. And, uh, and I can't believe my wife looks at me when I try to t- preach to her about Buddhism. Like, she gives me a look at, what audacity? <laughs> like, what do you know? And, uh, and then she's in shock. What happened? I, w- I want to add this. I know it's not a cool show, but we're watching Kung Fu because we're stuck here. <laughs> kind of, and... and and I know that's, that's a white guy playing an Asian, but the, the racism she's looking at there and her jaw drops and she's not sure she wants to, she used to want to come to America. Now she's not so sure. So anyway, yeah, I'm going to get to read your book and just coming from the other side of it. Um, of course, I've, and I do encounter racism uh, as a white person, but hey, <laughs> I've, been, I've been referred to as Meguk and Yahweh and Faram, and, and but that's you know so it's it's a good education to be to um to live here, and uh, thank you for your talk. You know, really opened my heart, and uh, I'm gonna look. and uh, I we 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 grieve for you. What happened? Thank you so much, James. Thank you for sharing. I'm very touched by what you shared. Uh, Paul Disco. Thank you very much for your book and your talk. I have not had a chance to read your book yet, but I would like to. Um, it's an insight into your generation of someone who's who's of a, of a much of a different generation. Um, I came to studying Buddhism in the sixties, the mid sixties. But I don't, I somewhat bristle at the idea of being a convert because Buddhists, we're all Buddhists. We're all Buddhists. We just, some of us know it and some of us don't. Some of us verbalize it, some of us don't. I don't, I don't feel that I'm a convert. I feel that I'm part of, part of, of, of Buddhism. But anyway, um, there's two, there's two sides though that, that this, I mean, I, I understand and I sympathize and I, I understand your where your your from your your generation's point of view, but in my generation we were we the the white students the white Buddhists were the minority and and the and the the immigrant population uh, resented us and 
looked down at us. There were a few that encouraged us, but mostly they resented us because these groups were mostly cultural cultural centers. They were celebrating their culture, and and it was a way of them feeling some some cohesion in a in the midst of a world that was not totally sympathetic to them. So having us come along and and enter their world was 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 somewhat threatening. And we finally, finally had to se- had finally ended up separate. This is the San Francisco Zen Center I'm talking about. And then I studied in Japan for a number of years, and and of course, and do Japanese building techniques, and certainly get a lot of pushback from Japanese American architects who who have little or no experience with their tradition, but but feel that it's theirs, that it's theirs, and that um, that I'm an interloper. So. Um, there is the other side of the coin there that that there is a certain amount of resistance from, and I've had it with the Shin Church too, trying to be volunteer and help the Shin Church, but they 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 don't. Um, it's they feel like I'm appropriating their 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 cultural understanding, and um, although I've had worked worked for many years with the, with a Shin engineer, that was a most wonderful work, wonderful experience. But the but the crossover between the two cultures is is fairly thin and fairly small. I mean, it's, it's and then then you on the other hand you have the crossover between the the Judeo Christian bigoted American exceptionalists that, that enter Buddhism and bring all their baggage baggage with them and want to turn Buddhism into something that's safe for Christianity, which I also have even more trouble with. Um, but I'm I'm uh, anyway. It's it's the, the two there's a, there's the two sides contending. They side with the that's protecting the the cultural immigrant, and, and the side that is protecting the 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 predominant culture and the and the, and the bigotry of the of the predominant culture, and finding a way in the middle for Buddhism is is, is something that I think about constantly, and I'm glad that you're putting so much energy into it. I congratulate you very much. Thanks, Paul. I think what you share to me, it reminds me there are really a lot of different perspectives, right? This is, you know, and I think I would say that for my book, it felt important to, you know, I think I've heard the concerns you voiced. I've read these and I've heard it from multiple people, read it in essays and books. And I think what struck me was just how little I read from Asian American voices. And so to try to pluralize the conversation and bring more voices into the space so that people can understand where they're coming from. And I think both what you and James share is just a reminder that context really matters, right? Um, Some things that happen in America because of really the heavy racial karma, if I could borrow a term from Larry Ward, that this nation carries, I think it's a lot. It didn't get created in a day and it's not going to be addressed in a day. But I think that, yes, the need for more perspectives to me feels very important. And to it's tricky to, to name the points of pain that we all feel and then to attend in a way to create systems that lower that pain. So there's a lot, there's a lot in what you shared and I know we don't have much time. So I think maybe I want to make sure that we're not missing anyone else's questions. I think it's Kunika has a hand up. Hi, I think, can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kunaka, uh, pronounced she, her. I'm a member of the Zen Buddhist temple in Chicago. 
a, a Korean Zen tradition. Um, I actually, this is the first time I've had a critical mass of Asian descent Buddhists in one location. So if I could just ask a question on my Asian descent Zen Buddhist, uh, Buddhist brothers and sisters in the Dharma, I have a really specific question. My question is, I was drawn to Zen to practice in this tradition. And I'd like to exchange thoughts, reflections about how learning these practices, as we call them in the way we've been taught to use this language, has disrupted your experiences of racial suffering and or trauma. Because even though I, I hear everything you're saying and I agree and all the experiences of microaggression exclusion I've experienced, but I still practice with full devotional heart in my tradition. And my all the most of the teachers are human beings with flaws, but I still practice wholeheartedly in this tradition. And even though I'm troubled, I still practice wholeheartedly in tradition and I chant and I make my vows and I prostrate. So if you're if we're practicing in these traditions that are implicated in with colonialism and racial supremacy and religious um, hegemony, why are we still doing it? What are we getting out of? I think about it a lot. Mostly I get immediate alleviation of the physical symptoms of racial trauma. But sometimes the, the details of our sanghas can bring, bring more racial trauma. So I kind of just want, this is the first time I've had seen more Asian faces in the space that <laughs> was also Buddhist. I kind of am going to just ask a question that hopefully we can bear witness to. Why are we here? If we're choosing to be here, if we're an Asian American practicing in, in white convert lineages. And it doesn't matter who answers. <laughs> Hey, my name is Hang. I'm actually uh, Howard's brother. brother. I practice in the Korean Zen tradition. I practice with the International Autonomous School of Zen, which was founded by Zen Master Sun Sang in the 70s. Depending on where you look, different places show up in America and the West. Lots of white. Anyway, so I really appreciate your question. Also, thank you. Excuse me, Han. I think your voice is slightly weird. The sound is slightly weird. Okay, okay. You might try turning off the video, and and maybe that would clarify the audio. Oh, that, that's fine. We can hear a little bit of what you said. You could also consider typing typing what you said in the chat. But I think I was sharing a little bit about uh, his practice and also his appreciation for Kunaka's question. Hello, hello, Uh, Miss Phyllis, go ahead and you. Hello, hello everyone. It's Hi, good to see you. Good to see you too, and thank you so much uh, for the talk. It was wonderful. Um, I do want to respond to the question about why I'm here. Why am Why am I still here? I think <laughs> Buddhism, the uh, 
the practice of Buddhism, at least for myself personally, uh, is give me a lot of tools um, to not just deal with my own pain, but others as well. And, and that really enriched my life, including my experience with pain. Um, pain is not one, a one-dimensional experience, as many of you know. Um, and trauma, when you talk about trauma, it's this like long-term suffering that can live underneath your surface for so long. It lingers. And, and it's not something that we just say, I don't want it, get out of my life. It doesn't work that way. And, and I think to understand that not just, not just in a way that, oh, people have similar experience with me, uh, suffering the same way. That's just only one way to understand it. But also understand that people who doesn't experience the same event from the same angle also suffer in different ways. It's very valuable to me. And, um, the study of Buddhism helped me to to um, enter that space, so that my own traumatic experience become richer, if you if you will, and become more meaningful. So that's why Buddhism really is really helpful for me. I can respond just and to keep it brief too. Um, oh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, yeah, that that really resonated with me too. Because and as a as an Asian American millennial, um, I mean, I grew up very much internalizing whiteness. Like I thought basically that I was white and that like um, and wanted to be white. Um, I still struggle with that deeply every day of my life. Um, and so not to make Buddhism like essentially Asian, but it is also historically true that it's an, it's an Asian religion. Um, and so for me, a part of it is the, you know, the symptom, you know, symptom management, if you want to call it that um, symptom reduction or something. Um, part of it is definitely sort of the, the um, uh, sense of general community, um, a lot of it really is honestly like um, an attempt to sort of like find my way back, whatever that means, because my parents aren't Buddhist, you know, um, I had, I've had Christian uh, uh, ministers in my, in, in my family history. Um, but a part of it is for me, like trying to figure out, um, but nothing else really seemed to work. <laughs> Um, and so this, I, me engaging with Buddhism is as much me trying to re-engage with what it means for me to be Asian at all. Um, because I constantly feel one very white, but not white enough and both very Asian and never Asian enough. Um, and so why I'm like in predominantly white spaces is one, I, you know, history and tradition, um, uh, that lent, you know, contributes to this. I just happen to really enjoy Zen practice. Um, and I find a lot of meaning in Zen practice while not only being 
confined to Zen, you know, sort of approaches. Um, but I think it also gives me a way to figure out, I think it's also a space where I can contend with the parts of me that feel, that still feel very white and what exactly that means. Um, even if the Asian part of me also feels like it's not being seen or heard at the same time. And I just don't think there's the, the I think the other side of it is that if I were in a predominantly Asian community, honestly, I probably just feel, I'll, I probably will also feel very out of place um, because of this sort of dual hyphenated um, sort of experience I've had. So that's, that's my take on it. <laughs> Hello, may I make another attempt at speaking? Can you hear me? That's better. Sorry about that. Thank you for your question. Thank you, Jin Han, Han, for your beautiful book and your uh, sharing today. Uh, try to be concise with uh, Kanaka's, uh, Tanaka's, uh, Kanaka's question. Uh, I came to the U.S. when I was 10 years old from China uh, with my family. Um, as you can imagine, uh, I came here at that age not conceptualizing myself as a minority. So it's been interesting uh, to 10 years later find myself feeling limited, feeling inferior, um, and having trouble with just kind of um, looking at the trajectory of my life, feeling limited in my options. And when I realized, looking back now, I've internalized racism over the years. At that point, I didn't really realize it. And that was at the heart of a lot of my suffering as a young man trying to find my way. And that's um, when I practiced, started practicing Zen in my early 20s. A lot of the work in those early years was looking at uncovering and healing all the racist um, experiences I've had, all the racial trauma and the in deep internalization of that. Uh, so this is part of the reason I do this practice, and it has really transformed my life. I had no idea how limited I was by the internalization. So the early years of the practice really helped me kind of lift up that layer and look at who I am beneath that. Uh, and of course, as we, as we continue to practice, we start to look at other ideas we have about ourselves and where they came from and and really, who, what, what am I? And it's, we continue to, continue to ask that question. So that, that's kind of the more intrapersonal uh, perspective in terms of why I continue this practice. A more interpersonal um, lens is that, I, of course, again, without realizing it fully, I've been feeling alienated all these years living in America as an immigrant, uh, as a child of an immigrant, never really been feeling embraced or welcomed or integrated into any kind of white community uh, ever until I was embraced by my white Buddhist and Buddhist Sangha. And I joined them and I felt embraced. That was, a, and I, I, just, I had no idea that was what, it, what was, had been missing from my life. <laughs> uh, and that was powerful. That was powerful to not see not only that I'm embraced by, by white people and a white community, but also that large aspects, important aspects of my own culture are embraced and valued 
by this community and by uh, white community, white people. And um, that was important for my growth as a young man and as I was finding my way. So that was an interesting turning point for me, both intrapersonally and interpersonally. Thank you for asking that question and for having me, the, allowing me the opportunity to reflect on that. Uh, thank you. I just want to pause and thank you. And I want to tell a joke for levity. <laughs> I went to my Sangha temple, predominantly white, mostly white, 75 white people in a room, three statues of Asian men, and a room full of people, white people bowing to an Asian man. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> I didn't care. I don't care what they did. Yeah. I don't care what it's about, but sign me up. <laughs> there you go. And every day that we prostrated, I lived in temple, 108 prostrations every morning to the Buddha. The power, and this is talking about diversity and representation in the Sangha, the ability to um, prostrate to the statue of an Asian 108 times was impossible was incredibly empowering in my professional career in my life. And I wouldn't have been able to finish a doctorate and have a career if I hadn't had the iconography of Asians in my life and in my home, because I lived in Temple in Chicago. So I think that when we talk about Asians, the, the hidden empowerment is that the representation of Asian bodies in your everyday life, if you're in a predominantly white world, is really, really powerful and it's really subtle. And so chanting in Korean, and Sunita is my Dharma brother, chanting in Korean, even though I'm Filipino, very powerful. So I asked the question, knowing the answer in some ways, to see if my Asian Dharma brothers and sisters had a similar sensation of, if you live in a predominantly white world, to go home and have Asian faces that are venerated and galleries of pictures of Asians, bodhisattvas, was really healing um, my soul, my spirit, my body because of prostrations. So I just wanted to sh offer that to our, the, our Asian descent practitioners because I think it's really important to name out the healing parts of our lineages that we, we ourselves probably may not have realized was healing a lot of racial uh, karma in our bodies. And I think it saved my life. I know it saved my mind. So I just wanted to share. So thank you. Come Samnida. Thank you for that. Uh, there's a, another hand up, uh, Joey Ryan, before I call on you, though, I want to make sure people know that in the chat box, Howard has posted a uh, discount uh, to get uh, Chen Sing's book from the publishers. So you, uh, look in the chat box and you can uh, see a discount code uh, to, to, to get a copy of Chen Sing's book. Uh, so, Joey Ryan. Yes, um, Chen Sing and everyone who's spoken, it's very uh, humbling to hear all your deep awareness of how we're trying to become a global community. Um, there's so much of what we talk about is about inclusiveness, the diaspora, um, and authenticity. 
Uh, Siddhartha came from India. Bodhidharma moved north and and east into Asia. Dogen moved back west into China. We're all moving about. How how do we embrace this huge, massive universality that we're attempting? Just a, a quick anecdote. I sat with Quakers, one of the most inclusive Christian sects, for many, many years. But myself, as an Irish, Italian, second-generation immigrant family, Catholic, I felt excluded because the authentic Quakers were those who had British roots, sat, visited, made pilgrimages to Britain. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to bring my thoughts together. But if, if we're hoping for some universality in whatever tradition we followed, and I followed Zen probably, Soto primarily, since five decades, I'm not a Buddhist. Did Buddha think he was a Buddhist? Did Christ think he was a Christian? Did Muhammad think he was a Muslim? What can I say? Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, We are uh, uh, getting a little late time-wise. Uh, but I wanted to just uh, call on Shenzing if you have any responses to any of the wonderful conversation here. I'm so enjoying this rich conversation and rich sharing. I think to the point of universality and particularity, I think that's what Be the Refuge is playing with. I think that Asian American Buddhist, because Buddhism is a universal religion. You know, it's really a missionizing religion. It's meant for everyone of different backgrounds. And I always love hearing people's stories of their affinities to Buddhism and what drew them to it. You know, what's led them to stay, right? For me, I think much of what Kunaka, you talked about, I mean, it is the the bowing, the ritual, the the iconography, just the beauty of it, the devotion, uh, the communities, but the spiritual friends. And for me, it's, to me, what I love is the diversity of the tradition. Like, it's so humbling. I've gone to several different sanghas, temples at this point, but I know what I see is just such a small slice of what is out there. Uh, I just learned so much from everyone, from all of you, each and every one of you. So I appreciate that. And then why I focus on Asian American Buddhists, it is to understand where Buddhism in some ways comes from, where it's rooted, that it's rooted in different cultures, and to find a path to universality that is still rooted in kind of our cultural particularities. I think we can hold that paradox. And I appreciate the category because like all our categories, we play with them, you know, like sometimes I think about it as maybe a pair of shoes or something like I'm not going to wear them to bed, but sometimes there's a time and place to wear a certain pair of shoes in different spaces. So there's a time and place sometimes for me to hold closer that identity of Asian American Buddhists for particular skillful reasons that are aligned with my Buddhist values, with my Buddhist ethics, with my practice. And sometimes there's a time and place to let that go. And that's okay. So I think it's an understanding of how do we move, just like you said, Joey, how do we move 
between how do we move through, how do we, I think I'll just come back again to spiritual friendship and that that is, continues to inspire me, the model of Kalyana Mitta, how much we learn from each other. And so I just want to appreciate each and every one of you here today for all that you've taught me and shared with me today. I'm deeply grateful for all of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chen Zing. Um, um, so uh, we'll we'll do some uh, chanting now. Uh, David Ray lead us, and then after that, uh, for people who can stay, uh, there's a time for just informal uh, discussion on the site. I don't know if you can stay, Chen Zing. It's up, you know, it's. Uh, whether you do or not is okay, but um, David, would you start? Uh... Yes, I will. Uh, so first, um, I'll make sure everyone is muted for the chanting. We're going to chant today uh, a short sutra for the protection of life uh, to the Bodhisattva of Compassion. I'll share the screen, and first we chant the repentance verse uh, three times. Let me bring this up. And so we'll begin with, Verse, which we'll chant three times. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. En me juku kanon gyo Kanze o namu butsu yo butsu in yo butsu en bupo so en jo rakugajo chonen kanze on bonen kanze on nenen jushin ki nenen furishin kanze on namu butsu yo butsu in yo butsu en bupo so en Joraku Nenen furishin kanze on namu butsu yo butsu in yo butsu en bupo 
so en joraku gajo chonen kanze on onen kanze on nen jushin ki nen furishin kanze on namu butsu yo butsu uin yo butsu uen bupo so en joraku gajo chonen kanze on bonen kanze on nen jushin ki nen furishin kanze on namu butsu yo butsu uin yo butsu uen bupo so en joraku gajo chonen kanze on bonen kanze on nen jushin ki nen furishin Shin kanze on namu butsu yo butsu uin yo butsu uen bupo so en joraku gajo chonen kanze on bonen kanze on nenen jushin ki nenen furishin. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted and mejuku kanon gyo. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. Through the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom mahaprajna paramita